Hey Crossings podcast community, this teaching is called A Jumping Conclusion and is the sixth and final teaching in our Lent 2022 series, A Way Not Our Own. It was taught by Caleb Gilmore on April 10th, 2022. Thanks for listening. So around the year 50 AD, which is not too long after the time of Jesus, There were a group of Roman soldiers patrolling the western hill country of Judea, which is not far from Jerusalem. And as these Roman soldiers were patrolling, they had just responded to a rebel attack, some Jewish rebels who had attacked Roman soldiers, a Roman slave actually. And they were there to establish and keep the peace of Rome. And as they were patrolling, they came to a small village where they found a scroll of the Torah, a sacred text of Judaism, the law of Moses. And one of these soldiers, upon finding the scroll, cut it to pieces and burned the scraps. The Jewish historian Josephus says that news spread quickly, so quickly, that the Jewish people became so angry that they acted as though it were their whole country which had been consumed in flames. So a mob marched to the governor's palace and demanded justice for this atrocity that had happened. This soldier, they said, had not committed an offense against them or their country per se, but this soldier had actually committed an offense against their God. So the governor found the soldier responsible and quite amazingly had the soldier executed for his crimes against the book. Let's do a thought experiment. It's not really a thought experiment. Imagine you are living in a political superpower whose reach extends virtually across the known world. Imagine that you are living in an economy where some people are objectified. In fact, some people are treated as objects. Where access to wealth depends largely on family bank accounts and ownership of property. Imagine that within this world, you are part of a religious group that has trouble finding its way in this world. Some people in your community benefit directly from the political superpower. Some people even work in its administration. Others believe that the political rulers are corrupt, wicked, doomed to destruction. Some are willing to cut ties with this religion altogether. It's outdated, it's irrelevant, it's backwards. Others have doubled down on this religion. In fact, they've sacralized their political views. Their political enemies are now demonic. Their allies are their saviors. To be saved in this religion actually isn't so much a matter of where you go after you die anymore, It involves being represented here and now by a person in power, a king, a president, a leader, who will fight your battles, 
and humiliate your foes. Some think, even within this system, within this religion, that God is on their side to accomplish these dreams. Others, still within this world, aren't even sure if there is a God. Or if there is, God must be a wall. Regardless of who these people are, which side of an issue they find themselves on, they all have one thing in common. They all believe that they alone are right. I want us to maintain this imaginary world as we study our final passage in this pre-Easter season of Lent. Because what we've just imagined together, what we've just described, easily represents first century Israel-Palestine and the Jews living in that time period, this, this time around the story of Jesus that we enter into this morning. And yet it also perfectly describes our current society. So today, several times and in several different ways, I, I want us to ask this question. What if we are wrong? There was a time, some of you may remember this, where Christians passed out these little pieces of paper, these religious tracts, and they dreamed of confronting a non-religious person with this question. It would go something like this. Yeah, but what if you're wrong? Because if I'm wrong, nothing happens. I just die. But if you're wrong, well... To turn the tables a bit on us, as is only appropriate during the season of Lent, especially appropriate on Palm Sunday, we needed to ask that question to ourselves. What if we're wrong? As I said earlier, this, this particular Sunday is the last Sunday before Easter, traditionally known as Palm Sunday. And throughout this 40-day season of pre-gaming for resurrection, this Lenten season, we've been trying to appropriately get ourselves ready for what we might find seven days from now. We've been comparing this, this whole season to the baking process. Many people would assume that cake is good. I, I don't know that that needs to be argued for, though maybe not all of us like the icing as we found out last week. But for the past five weeks, we've been trying to align ourselves to this process of baking a cake that we are going to enjoy on Easter together. And there will be cake, I promise. Some of you have been asking. For the past, past five weeks, we've been looking at this. We've considered our recipe this way that is not our own. We've aligned the ingredients of all aspects of life. We've mixed everything together properly in the right time. We've let the batter sit. We've prepared the topping, this excessively essential icing. And now it's time to bake. You may notice that I don't have an oven up here. Something about a fire marshal and codes and things like that. <laughs> You'll just have to wait and see how we get this in the oven. Because baking, after all, is essentially about waiting. Most of baking is just waiting. Because you can't rush 
the baking process. It just takes as long as it takes. And so as we approach Holy Week, this this week leading up to Easter, we should not rush the process. Just because we've made it 33 days into our baking process doesn't mean we can turn up the temperature on the oven and cut the time in half. We need to slow down, especially as we approach the passion narratives today, as, which is another name for these stories describing Jesus' betrayal, crucifixion, death, this time leading up to the death of Jesus. As I was looking through this, I, I had never really put a number to it, but I, I wanted to see just how much of the Gospels, these stories about Jesus, how much time do they actually spend talking about the passion? And a conservative estimate would say that the Gospels spend about 40% of their stories covering just the final week of Jesus. If they're willing to devote half of their book to this last week, it's only appropriate that we slow down as well. Our natural temptation is to rush as quickly as we can to the empty tomb. But we need to spend as long as the gospel writers did drawing this thing out because everyone in that part of the story thought they knew what Jesus was up to. And it turns out they were all pretty wrong. Or at least if they were right, they were right in all the wrong ways. So what if we're wrong? Today, we're going to look at how Luke describes some of the last days of Jesus. And I have to warn you, I went into this week thinking I knew what I was going to say about this story, only to discover that I was wrong. So we enter into this scene where Jesus is preparing to go celebrate the Passover, and he's just finished teaching these parables, and this is how Luke begins the story. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. So this is a strange scene. Um, But basically what's happening here is that Jesus is making this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. We we presume to celebrate Passover, this, this holiday remembering the Exodus. And Luke tells us that the path that Jesus takes there to this place involves a location called the Mount of Olives. And also involves a donkey or a young horse or something, some kind of beast of burden that's never been ridden before. And I think Uh, as is probably important with all biblical stories, but maybe particularly this one, it's really good to visualize this scene. So I actually have a scene here. This is actually from the Mount of Olives uh, that I took when I was in Israel about four years ago. And as you can see, you can see a lot from the top of this mountain. And so there's the Dome of the Rock, which is where we believe the temple would have stood in the time of Jesus. And so imagine this scene taking place on the descent from this mountain, heading towards the temple, this most sacred site. All of this is taking place a stone's throw away from the most holy city in Judaism as Jesus prepares to celebrate this most important holiday. This is the scene of our story. 
But it's not just the scene that's symbolic. In the Hebrew scriptures, the prophet Zechariah envisions a final climactic battle against the enemies of Israel where God actually becomes king and brings salvation to the people. And this final battle, this this war to end all wars, takes place starting from the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half of the moving, half moving south. And then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Even earlier in the same book of Zechariah, the prophet talks about a conquering king coming to Jerusalem, riding a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, another name for Jerusalem. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, The way Luke is telling the story, the location, the preparations for this donkey, this beast of burden, I think it would have been impossible for the hearers of this story, for Jesus' disciples, to have not connected Jesus entering Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives on this donkey and not have political expectations expectations that this was the beginning of a glorious holy war, a battle for their identity, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was about to save them in some spectacular way. And that after the dust had settled and the corpses had been buried, they would finally be free. Luke tells us that the disciples did everything Jesus instructed them to. So he continues, he says, Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. I often wonder what it'd be like to try this today. Just go out in a market square, find a Land Rover or BMW. And as the owner is asking me, why are you doing this? Just to say, it's okay. The Lord needs it. But notice, notice how Luke tells the story. The Lord needs it. Jesus needs it. Calling Jesus Lord is sort of a political thing. This is a title reserved for Caesar, and yet it is being applied to Jesus. Again, How would the followers of Jesus not have assumed the political implications of this action, of these words? It's clear that they believed this to be some kind of political act because of what they do next. Luke says they brought it, the the donkey or the colt, to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks out on the road like a red carpet. The whole story is now fitting into what we call a type scene. 
this like stereotypical genre of storytelling in which a king is being crowned or coming into a city after being victorious in battle. There are all kinds of stories like this in the ancient world. In fact, there's one in Israelite scriptures in in the book of 2 Kings when a different king is being anointed. This is a story about Jehu in 2 Kings 9. It says, they, the Israelites, quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. That's just weirdly close enough to Jesus. I, I don't see how the people could have seen what Jesus was doing, had these expectations and these scriptures in their heads, and not tried to reenact these scenes from their history. How could they have expected anything less than a political military king with stories like this, with expectations like this? How could they have avoided jumping to conclusions about what Jesus was going to be doing next? Story goes on in Luke. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The disciples essentially declared Jesus king in this moment. And in order to do that, they quote a scripture, Psalm 118, and they actually rewrite the lyrics to do it because The original line in the psalm says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those lines we just sang together. From the house of the Lord, the temple, we bless you. In this moment on the Mount of Olives with the temple right across the street, the people say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus here now in one short story has been called both king and Lord. He stands over both David and Caesar. And this scene has now become a full-blown political rally. Restore the soul of Israel. Make Israel great again. And a group of Pharisees, perhaps rightly, have a problem with this. Luke says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, Jesus, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So why do the Pharisees say this? And before you try to answer, what if you're wrong? What if the Pharisees are simply correct to be nervous about the Romans getting wind of this scene? coming in with soldiers like the ones from the story earlier who are all too eager to cut up Jewish books and the Jews who read them? What if the Pharisees are simply worried about what's going to happen to the people? What if the Pharisees are genuinely concerned for the safety and well-being of Jesus? After all, some Pharisees liked him. So why do we assume that these are the Pharisees that were jealous of him? I don't know. Maybe we're wrong. We can't be sure why they ask him to stop this scene. But they do tell Jesus, have your followers stand down, please. And yet Jesus refuses. Luke seems to be saying 
that the disciples in this crowd were in fact right, but perhaps not right in the way that they thought they were. Luke had no problem with the idea of Jesus as Messiah, as King, as Lord. Just not the Messiah or the King or the Lord you're thinking of. But right now would be the perfect time for Jesus to correct these bad assumptions, right? Why doesn't Jesus huddle everybody around and say, hey guys, you're right, you're right. But I'm not going to be sitting on any thrones today. I'm not going to be killing anyone to make this happen. In fact, I'm going to be killed. So maybe let's stop with this rhetoric. Jesus doesn't do that. I wonder almost in this scene, if Jesus being fully human himself isn't somehow confused about all that's going down himself. I think this scene on Palm Sunday should disturb us. Because I certainly want to tell Christians of some persuasions at the political rallies, whether they're feeling the burn or wearing red trucker hats, to stop. I would like for a large group of Christians to stop and consider the irreparable damage they may be doing to their own reputation and the teachings of Jesus because of the way they talk. And I'd certainly like for Jesus to correct them. And yet this Jesus allows the ruse to continue. So what if I'm wrong? I came into this teaching thinking that I was going to settle into this conclusion. This is the thesis that I thought would be. Jesus' followers must believe that Jesus is Lord and King and that Caesar, the secular power, is not. I thought I would plead with us to abandon all the impossible entanglements of our religious beliefs, assuming that you have those, and our political hopes. But what if I have to accept that Caesar is Lord? and Jesus is king, and that those aren't antithetical statements? What if I'm wrong about needing to be right in the right ways? What if my political beliefs and my transcendent ideas about God can coexist after all? Because to be honest, I don't see anyone coming up with good solutions to this problem, either in our time today or in this story. And before you start thinking, Ah, Caleb, but Jesus does show them another way because he raises from the dead. And in Luke's second book, Acts, the apostles, they get the Holy Spirit and they start the church. But slow down. Don't rush ahead. That's not how today's story ends. I need to be bothered by this. I think maybe we need to be bothered by this story because our brains are hardwired to jump to conclusions. If you were once bullied by a kid with a mohawk, it's really easy to imagine that all people with mohawks are bullies. But that would not necessarily be true. Uh, a guy named Stanley Fish once talked about this and the way that we, we do this, whether we're reading or talking or, or just thinking. He says, we like to place ourselves outside of a system and presume to make sense of it, to fit the parts together. We, we find is that the parts are already together and that we are one of them. 
living in the meaning we seek. We, all, we are already where we want to be, and our attempts to get there by writing, by reading, by speaking, can do nothing else but extend through time to the good news of our predetermined success. Basically, Fish is asking, what if we find exactly what we are looking for all the time? What if the thing that we think we found finds us? What if we don't jump to conclusions, but the conclusions jump to us based on what we want to conclude? That's what I see happening in the story of Palm Sunday. And so this week I'm considering, what if I'm wrong? N.T. Wright asks a similar question in talking about this scene. He says, as we arrive at Jerusalem with Jesus, the question presses upon us, are we going along for the trip in the hope that Jesus will fulfill some of our hopes and desires? Are we ready to sing a psalm of praise, but only as long as Jesus seems to be doing what we want? We come into this moment of common meal and we gather around this table. Some call it the Eucharist. Some call it the Lord's Supper. But it is a table that I believe we very often misunderstand. This is a table where even the people around the table with Jesus misunderstood what Jesus was talking about at the table. There is bread here that is also somehow flesh. There is a cup that is also somehow blood. And so as we gather around this table today, as we come to take these elements of common meal, on this Palm Sunday, I want us to simply consider, what if we're wrong about what this table represents? All the people, all the disciples at this table said Christ, said King, said Teacher, said Lord. And in the end, they ran. They hid. They left. As we approach the table this Palm Sunday, so full of expectations for what might happen in seven days, may we have the courage for the next seven days to seriously, seriously ask, what if we find the Jesus we're looking for? And what are we going to do about that for the next seven days? Whenever you're ready, we invite you to come. We will serve you these elements and we have gluten-free options. If you need those, just let us know. But as uh, the band plays, we invite you to this table now to consider these questions that we've been asking this morning.